Okay, so we've just arrived outside the Ritz. It's a beautiful day. In we go. Here's the concierge. Hello. Lovely to meet you. I'm here to meet the chief executive of Aston Martin. Aston Martin, come this way, please, and welcome to the Ritz. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Meir. Welcome to City AM Unregulated at the Ritz. This week we're joined by Aston Martin Chief Executive Andy Palmer. I think it would have been a good good move, to be honest, for Apple. Not sure it's quite so good if you're McLaren, frankly speaking. He talks about Brexit. Please negotiate no tariffs and please give us direction as quickly as you rationally can. He tells us about the Aston Martin brand. Probably wrap it up by saying Aston Martin is naughty and sporty. And he talks about his 37 years in the car industry. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. Hello, welcome to this week's special edition of City AM Unregulated. Special because this week we're joined by the Chief Executive of Aston Martin, Dr Andy Palmer, for afternoon tea at the Ritz. Welcome. As a British-born chartered engineer, chartered manager and businessman, Dr Palmer's had 37 years of automotive industry experience. He joined as President and CEO of Aston Martin in October 2014. So first things first, and we'd like to find out what makes Chief Executives tick on this podcast. What did you have for breakfast this morning? This morning, I had nothing, actually. So today is a, is a fasting day. Um, like a lot of Chief Executives, I spend too much time in uh, corporate uh, dinners and lunches, and, um, and you get bigger and bigger, and uh, this summer I decided it was time to lose weight. So uh, this is my fasting day. And describe the, kind of the beginning of your day. How do you start? What time do you get up? Uh, I'm usually up at about 6.30. It depends on sometimes sometimes earlier, but on average about 6.30. Usually I'll have a quick uh, a shower and a quick breakfast and then on the road. It takes me about 40 minutes to get to, to work, uh, which is a, a joyous drive, to be honest. It's uh, little country lanes uh, around by Silverstone all the way up into Gaydon. And presumably you live your brand, so what do you drive into work? Uh, right now I have... Um, a Vantage uh, V12 manual, uh, which is uh, which is actually one of the cars that that I insisted that we do with enjoying the company. I, I felt that the everybody else was leaving behind manual transmissions, and I felt it my uh, duty in life to to make sure that we maintain the manual transmission. So now I'm driving I'm driving a very mean, uh, very beautiful looking Vantage. I feel like I I can hear the jealousy of our listeners. Do you listen to anything in the morning or indeed on the way home? I, I, tend to, I tend to listen to the radio on the way in in the morning. Just I like the conversation. So, the City AM podcast? City, yeah, we're absolutely. I always listen to the, 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 the podcast. Usually it's a Radio 2 or Radio 4. Um, but on the way home, nothing better for me than drop, drop the, uh, the roof down and uh, switch on my uh, iPad iPod and, uh, and and listen to my favourite music. I'm a big uh, I'm a big punk rocker. It goes right back to my youth. So uh, rock and and punk and uh, that kind of thing. So Stranglers, Sex Pistols, and Susie and the Banshees, all of that kind of music. There are two types of um, 
management styles, the hands-on and the hands-off, and uh, the figurehead type and, you know, managerial, you know, just generally, you know, the, uh, even the chillaxing type of approach of David Cameron. But you are very much hands-on. Yeah, hands-on. I, I, I'm not quite sure what, what analogy I would make. The one I like best, because I like, I like history, either uh, Wellington or Napoleon, uh, Napoleon at the back of the battlefield, strategizing, looking, strategizing. Uh, I'm very much the Wellington type, so on the front line, uh, trying to understand things from 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 the front line perspective, and directing battle from from there. I guess there's no right or wrong way, but that tends to be my but you my, have my a, way. But you have a background which is r- literally from the factory floor, mm-hmm. and so you know you know the nuts and bolts of the whole process. You know you 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 know a player manager, let's say. <laughs> Well, yeah, I left school at 16 years old, so as, as an apprentice, uh, I guess during the course of my career, I've been fortunate enough to engineer basically every bit on a car. Um, so as I've gone through, you know, from starting in clutches and brakes to body and chassis, and and as I rose up the ranks to the head of engineering for Nissan in Europe, I guess I at one moment or other I touched most parts of the car. And then I went into business as I moved to Japan, lived in Japan for 13 years, and that gave me my business experience, and I was lucky enough to manage engineering, marketing, sales, planning. Uh, so I covered pretty much the, all aspects of, of, of business, uh, and then finally two years ago to be the chief executive. Isn't that unusual in your, in your field to, to be you know, amongst your peers, to have that type of depth of experience and knowledge of, of your area yeah i guess you can you can argue it's it's advantages and and disadvantages sometimes if you come in from outside of the industry i suppose one could argue you have a clean perspective you're not polluted i prefer to know where all the bodies are buried how much time do you spend on the factory floor and why is it so important it's where i feel most comfortable it's a bit of the job that i enjoy most we're launching the uh, the db11 first really new car for more than 12 years right now so we're just in launch phase waiting for the uh, release to sales and I guess in that context I'm down on the on the shop floor probably twice a day about an hour each time as the as the car gets towards the cars get towards um, slightly more mature stage and we build up stock then my commitment is is for the first thousand cars which is basically between now and the end of the year I'll personally inspect every one of them. That gives the consumer some confidence that everything has been done and it's my name that's going on the engine. It's my email that's going into the handbook if the customer has any issues. So that, that when, when you do that, well, I don't know, uh, I, I hope so, uh, but you don't do that unless you have a great deal of confidence in, in the team to make sure that you don't get the telephone calls and the and the emails. And mine is just a question of reinforcing my belief that the most important thing in any any company is basically the customer. Starting at Aston Martin, when you came in, the company had gone into administration seven times, which mm. incidentally is the number of James Bonds there have been, we've worked out. <laughs> um, and and it hadn't had a CEO for some time. So what were the, the challenges that you faced? Yeah, it was about 18 months that it hadn't had a, a chief exec. And you're right, it's, if you look over the history of the, of the brand, it's been around for 103 years. It's made... 80,000 cars in that whole time, which is, you know, about the number of cars that Toyota makes in two days. It's never really been profitable. And uh, with close shaves and maybe seven times in administration, it, it, it's a enormously strong brand, but hasn't had, I would say, 
the the professionalism that you would need from a point of view of the of of, of the balance sheet, and and that's no one's fault. It, it's a whole combination of things. So, obviously, when I was when I was asked to to consider joining the company, part of what I was looking for was commitment from the from the shareholders, not to do just one car, which has kind of been the history of the brand, but basically, um, an auto business needs tempo and it it needs a continuum. So basically, what I, what I'd asked for was money to do the next four cars. The cars then then following that would be funded out of working capital. So basically the plan as we have it is we're going to we're going to start in 2016, one car every year, seven new cars, seven year life, copy repeat, copy repeat, copy repeat. And it's that tempo with with covering that breadth of market which is the transformation in the brand and that includes you know culling some sacred cows uh, and and for example bringing to market an Aston Martin SUV which is a controversial choice for purists yes um how how has that gone down and how did that go that suggestion go down with your shareholders oh with the shareholders they they get it i mean you you, you can be you have to be true to something i don't think that we're necessarily true just to being a sports car brand. I didn't read that anywhere in any of the things that I saw coming into the company. When you try to put your finger on what, what does Aston Martin stand for? You know, our view, the management's view is it's all everything that we do is for the love of beautiful. And that's it. Now, the challenge for us, therefore, is not whether or not we should make an SUV. The, the challenge for us is how do you make a beautiful SUV that aspires to all the things that 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 Aston Martin stands for British, we're going to make it in Wales, authentic materials, beautiful proportions, beautiful design. And I think that's the challenge is live the brand against his raison d'etre, which we think is is the love of beautiful. But isn't the case that 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 quality and that attention to detail and all those um, expensive materials have been the reason why the company's had problems in the past? Because it's difficult to make money out of a quality product, cheap and cheerful um, makes money. Um, the high end doesn't, and yeah. you know maybe you're not. Maybe the cars are not expensive enough. Well, um, maybe they're not. Know. But that's a, that's a question sh- of supply and demand, isn't it? So you know, part of what we're doing is we're saying that we'll never make more than seven thousand sports cars a year, and then we're we're building a new factory in Wales, and that's capable of seven thousand units. So our maximum maximum capacity is fourteen thousand units, handmade. You know, we're the only mass, well, the only brand of any size that hand makes. The cars from scratch. We have one robot in the entire factory, which incidentally uh, puts the uh, the bonding, the, the glue on the on the, the the panels. We call it James Bonder. <laughs> uh, um, so we hand make the cars, uh, and and now the question is, how do you how do you allow the the natural price of the car to to rise given the exclusivity? Well, first of all, you have to be manufacturing at maximum capacity and have a waiting list. And you see that already happening now with our special versions. What is the waiting list at the moment? Well, it, I mean, basically, if you wanted, for example, a, a, G, a GT12 or you wanted a, a GT8 or a, or a Zagato, uh, I'm afraid it's bad luck, mate. They're all sold out. You can't have them. And and that's part of the, the change. If you talk about um, a DB11, which is a new car, um, then basically we've got a, a waiting list of 3,000 people. So you guys, you, like other luxury brands, have been moving, not moving your focus, but certainly extending your focus into markets like the Middle East yeah. um, and Asia. 
Um, we we had the co-managing director of Debrett's on the show a few episodes ago, and she talked about the importance of changing your etiquette to meet other markets. Have you found that? Have you found that you've had to change how you behave? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I lived in Spain for a year and I lived in Tokyo for 13 years. My wife's Japanese. So you know, very much you change the way you empathize with different cultures in different ways. And you have to do that whether you're managing whether you're managing different cultures or whether you're selling to different cultures. What, one of the reasons that we, we have to change our business model to include an SUV um, is because that's the expectation in the Far East. You know, the Chinese really don't get in big numbers right now. They don't get sports cars. What they do get is sedans and SUVs. So can you create a sporty, beautiful SUV? I mean, that, that's where the, the, the demand comes from. That's where, you, that's where you fill that factory in Wales. And has your experience in Japan affected your ability to do business in markets like that? I think so. I mean, I, I, I always tell the guys back in Gaiden, first of all, you know, don't put all of your product planners in, in Gaiden. You've got to get them out into the, the regions to understand and empathize with the customers. Undoubtedly, we, we view uh, Japan as, you know, our second biggest market uh, of potential. It's not, in fact, it's not, but it's the second biggest uh, luxury market in the world. And therefore, as a luxury manufacturer, we should be big. I want to move on to one of the biggest uh automotive stories in the past few weeks um, and that is rumours about McLaren being acquired by Apple which has since been denied by McLaren. Would that have been a good move for either Apple or McLaren? I think it would have been a good good move to be honest for um, for Apple. Uh, you know we, we work with Faraday Future which is which is also entering into uh, it's an internet company entering into the electric vehicles the biggest shock, uh, I think, for those kind of companies is, uh, you know, it's, they know how to make very, very good electronic bits. But a car is more than just its bunch of electronics. It's also got its chassis and body and handling, all those mechanical systems, and it's hard. And there are really two ways of going about it. You can go about it the uh, Tesla way, which is to recruit lots of traditional uh, automotive engineers and, and put them all together in Palo Alto. And arguably the Apple way as well. And the Apple way have gone down that route. But, uh, you know, a fast forward would be to acquire a company like McLaren. So I get it from their point of view. Not sure it's quite so good if you're McLaren, frankly speaking, because you want your bosses to understand your business. And our business is, is strewn with examples of, of conglomerates buying up car companies. I mean, just go back in my history, BAE owning Rover Group, what a disaster that was. Um, so so you really want your bosses and your shareholders to understand what you do, you're doing and you really want to be good at your own knitting, not, not a bunch of other things. And is Aston Martin developing a driverless car? Because that's what clearly Apple is working towards. Driverless. Um, look, there is... Um, we, we are developing an electric car, which is obviously the first step. Uh, in in that road to autonomy, autonomy, and if you think about the technical trends over the next ten years, it's probably autonomous, connected, zero emissions, and perhaps rideshare. Those are the kind of big 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 trends that are happening. Is there any demand for driverless? Well, first of all, first of all, we are not rushing to do autonomous cars. There are certain technologies, and we have access to those technologies through our partnership with Daimler. Um, certain technologies which are useful. 
Um, automatic parking is a good good example because when you're in a sports car, actually peripheral vision is quite difficult and you're curbing very expensive wheels. Um, so, so for example, <laughs> DB11 is, is, has... has uh, I'm cringing. <laughs> indeed. DB11 has uh, parking capability and a round view monitor. But we're not racing towards um, autonomy because, frankly speaking, the Aston is not normally the only car in, in the customer's garage. They're probably driving it as escapism and they it's a it's a driver's car that you want to engage with in fact in many respects we're going in the opposite direction offering a manual transmission for example is going in the opposite direction but our customers want to engage with the car uh, to your point about uh, driverless i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either we can certainly as an industry imagine autonomous driving with a driver in the driver's seat by 2020, 2021. That's, that's, I would say, almost as inevitable as death and tax. But the idea that legislation will allow you to take the driver out so that the car is fully responsible for everything that it does and all of the regulatory nightmare that goes with that, that isn't happening anytime soon. If you're in the market as we could be or plan to be with a car like Lagonda, which would compete with, for example, a Rolls-Royce. You know, basically, from the customer's perspective, a Rolls-Royce has been a driverless car for a, forever. You know, it's, it's called <laughs> James. Exactly. So, so there, there might be there might be something that makes some sense. But, but for Aston, no, Aston is all smart about... car rather than a driverless, exactly. driverless car. Exactly. Um, can you tell us a bit about your deal with Faraday Future? What's what's happening there? Faraday Future is a is a company that. That's, Principal shareholder is is a company called LATV. LATV is uh, an internet company, Chinese internet company. It's kind of a combination of Apple times Netflix times Google. Um, big company in China has an awful lot of subscribers. Like Apple, they have a motivation to uh, to uh, you know do good for the world and 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 introduce zero emission cars. The, the owner is passionate about bringing that to market, but wise enough to understand he doesn't know everything about about the car industry. So he's funding Faraday Future. Um, he's asked us to help in, in some of the mechanical side of things, uh, which we're, we're good at. Uh, and on the other hand, he's helping us, particularly with economies of scale and things like batteries and electric motors. Hard to imagine Aston Martin with more of a kind of high-pitched whine than a throaty roar. Oh, well, you can do all sorts of things. Uh, that, that's one of the challenges is how do you give the thrill of an Aston? What is it that gives you that, that adrenaline rush or the, 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 the goosebumps? Actually, I'm really passionate about electric cars. My, my history with Nissan and the Leaf, for example, you get an enormous amount of power and torque from an electric car, and you undoubtedly get those those goosebumps. The question on sound, well, that was a lot of debate inside the company. How, how do you get the goosebumps that you get from a V12 or a V8 engine? Well, you can't get it from a, a downsized three-cylinder engine, that's for sure. But maybe you can get the same exhilaration from silence. And that's part of, you know, giving that, that visceral experience that you get from an Aston. Perhaps enormous talk multiplied by silence could be really interesting. OK, I want to move on to one of the, or the biggest news story there is, Brexit. Aston Martin was one of the few companies, British companies, not to take a side. Mm-hmm. Are you glad that you didn't? Yeah, I am, ultimately. Um, I mean... I guess it's marked out by the fact that we are independent and British, which is not true of practically every other uh, vehicle manufacturer. So naturally, we have a slightly different perspective than than 
companies from the outside that have invested in the UK because they want to sell in Europe. You know, we are British. I also think that car manufacturers should should make cars and not play politics. So we took a neutral stance. We did our best to understand the arguments. We we put those those arguments on on leave and remain in front of the employees, and they voted with their with their hearts, knowing as many facts as we could give them. Have you been pleased by the uh, the fall in sterling since the ten percent fall? Has yeah, that well, that was big... you know what, that, one of the big things that we we actually predicted and we modelled was that 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 the pound would weaken. And you know, from my perspective, a weak pound is not a bad pound. Quite the opposite. If you want to have an industrial strategy for for this country, then you have to actively manage a weak pound in the same way that Abenomics in Japan actively manages a weak yen when it can. Uh, what what we did predict, though, was and incorrectly as it as it transpires, is that uh, the demand in Europe and the UK would drop immediately after Brexit, and our contingency plan was to push volume into America and build up build up, um, spend money from earned from the weaker pounds, spend money in in America to promote the brand to increase the volume and compensate in the United States. As it happened, we didn't see any fall off at all. Uh, in in UK and Europe, um, and we did get a benefit of the US, and we did get a benefit of a weaker pound. And right now, we're pretty happy with where we are. We're doing this interview in the week of the Paris Car Show, um, and we've heard the Nissan chief executive, so your old company, mm-hmm. um, saying that if he needs to make an investment in the next few months and can't wait until Brexit, then he has to make a deal with the UK government. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Uh, of course, is entirely up to him. It's uh, my my understanding and perspective is that all chief executives of car companies crave stability. They they want to be able to understand when when you when you develop a new car, it's it's an investment of a billion dollars, so it's a big bet, and and you want to safe off that bet as as much as you can. So stability. And and uh, the 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 current way of going, what you know, is what you really want. Uh, and when things happen, and I kind of get, you know, all of the other chief executives saying we want to keep the status quo. But wasn't he trying that. to scare the, you know scare people really, or scare the, the British government by saying if you don't do what I you know what we what we need, uh, we'll leave. Well. I can't speak for him, can I? What what I can what I can say is that he's talking about tariffs. First of all, is there is there really any probability of tariffs being imposed? You know, if we if we put sensible people around the table, there is no reason why a tariff barrier WTO ten percent should be imposed. It just means putting sensible people. Why? Why, why would that be the case? That's the case because if you look at cars produced in Europe for European consumption, 20% of them are sold in the UK. Why would the Germans and the, and the French and the Italians, those car manufacturers, are, it would destroy their European profitability if they had to then put pay a 10% on 20% of their cars. So they're going to be lobbying their governments and saying, you can't do this, guys. As, as, for, as for the UK, well, you know, for example, Aston Martin, 
30% of the cars that I sell are for the UK. 20% of the cars that I sell go to Europe. If everything raises up by 10% to cover the tariffs and, and the competitive environment, then Aston Martin is going to be making more money net-net as a result of those tariffs. So I don't think that we, we, we certainly don't have anything to worry if we get to an insane condition where tariffs go in place. The last point is it's not about tariffs. It's about the cost of getting all of those bits transformed into a car and shipped out to the, where the customers are. It's that total cost in that chain. And you have to look at everything in that chain. Now, again, we go back to foreign exchange. Before, before Brexit to after Brexit, very approximately, the pound has depreciated versus the euro by about 10%, which just happens to be around about the same as the tariff barrier that we're talking about. OK, not everything is made in pounds, so it may net out, but the reality is one offsets the other. Now, the best condition is we manage a weak pound, we don't have tariff barriers in place, and then suddenly the UK becomes a remarkably credible place to make more cars. And it, it goes the opposite. So you'd be OK with a hard Brexit? I'd be OK. I, I just, I mean, our point of view is please negotiate no tariffs and please give us direction as quickly as you rationally can. So we have to, we have to trust in the May government uh, basically to negotiate the best thing. But clearly what everybody wants is is low tariffs. And at least speaking from my company's point of view, a weaker pound is great. So we've got this far into the show with only mentioning 007 twice. That association between Aston Martin and James Bond, is that a help or a hindrance? Oh, undoubtedly uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a help because what it does is it gives you... Um, aided awareness, which is the top of the purchasing funnel, in places like China and the, and the United States. So the, the worst that can happen is you go to China and say, have you heard of Aston Martin? And the, the customer will say, in 99% of the cases, yes, we've heard of Aston Martin because of James Bond. Great. I think what's important is that the, the brand is not only about James Bond, it's about other things as well. And ultimately, I liken Aston to being a little bit like cricket. You kind of grow up knowing the rules of cricket. It, it, you kind of, it's like an osmosis, isn't it? You kind of learn the rules by playing playing the rules. Uh, and certainly as a, as, a, as a kid growing up, I know the rules of cricket and I don't really think anybody ever taught, taught them to me. I just learned them. If you go to the US and you say, do you know what cricket is? They'll say, yes, yeah, that a strange game you you Brits play. Do you understand it? Not really. I mean, why do you play for five days? And Aston's a bit like that. You know, in the UK, to some extent in Europe, everybody really understands Aston's brand. As you go further afield, they know it, but they don't really understand it. And James Bond helps with the knowledge of, but it's really important for us to explain, well, why does James Bond buy or drive our car? Well, you know, he's... Good-looking, arguably. Yes, I'll agree with that. Handsome, fit, likes luxury, likes speed, is a little bit naughty. Now, doesn't that perfectly describe an Aston Martin? So in two words, how would you describe the brand? There's lots of ways you could describe the brand, but if we make the analogy with, uh, with, with James Bond and that, that handsome guy that loves luxury, 
uh, is a bit sporty and naughty. I think we can probably wrap it up by saying Aston Martin is naughty and sporty. Absolutely. And have you met Daniel Craig? I have. Does he own an Aston Martin? I, you know, one of the things about Aston is that we're entirely discreet and it's not for me to mention who our owners are. We are speaking in which Aston Martin reached a vital landmark. It launched its first boat. Hmm. Why? Why a boat? Um, because the boat is utterly gorgeous, which is, again, back to that love of beautiful. Um, one of the important points, I think, for the transformation of the brand, and getting back to your earlier point about you're capped on volume, so where do you take the revenue model, where do you take the business model? We're not going to make tens of thousands of Astons because that would destroy the exclusivity that's associated with it. So we have to grow the business in another way. And and our view is that we're a luxury company in the same way that Hermes or Chanel is a luxury company. And we're credible in that space. And we have the wings have the capability to not only cover luxury sports cars extending to luxury sedans, Lagondas, to SUVs, but it can also stretch the brand in other directions. So, for example, why w- w- is it credible? We believe it's credible that you could have, you could own an Aston Martin apartment where an Aston Martin suit drive your Aston Martin down to the harbour to spend the weekend in your Aston Martin boat. So basically, we're about the lifestyle. When you when you own an Aston, you've got a certain a certain position in life. We like to call it the art of living. You've found yourself. You don't need to prove anything anymore. You don't need a big red noisy car or a big yellow noisy car. You're not needing to show off anymore. You're understated and you're confident. And when you reach that 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 stage in your life, you know what the best things in life are. And if you're part of the Aston lifestyle, part of what we can do is we can, if you want, concierge uh, people towards the other things that, that they might like and a beautiful 37-foot speedboat might be one of them. Is there any limit to how much you could sp- uh, stretch the brand? I think, I think, for example, we, we, we don't want to go in the directions of caps and T-shirts. Um, so we want to stay away from theme parks and that kind of thing. What, what, we, what we'd be interested in is, is, is basically anything that improves our pedigree as, if you want, an alternative to Hermes. Andy, thank you so much for coming down to the Ritz for us today. Um, we'll wrap up with one final question. What is your dream car? I have it. My dream car when I was a kid was, was always um, an Aston Martin Vantage V8. That was when I was, you know, my, my 15, 16 years old. That was the poster on my wall. I managed to get a 1980 Vantage V8, wow. uh, which happens to be the year that I passed my driving test. And... Um, I'm living the dream, baby. And what colour is it? British Racing Green. Beautiful it is. Thank you very much for coming down today. My great pleasure. With thanks to Dr Andy Palmer and the Ritz for hosting us, this has been City AM Unregulated. You can get the City AM Unregulated podcast by going to Audioboom or iTunes to listen on the go. City AM Unregulated is an Audioboom production.